we have a fundamental problem in our country around agriculture that we don't value food as a society. And the price that food is in the store is not enough for growers to make a living on, just barely. And that isn't the way it should be. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow living apparel and lifestyle brand. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having constantly in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. Come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Emma. Are you enjoying the snow? Yes, I am. It's still coming down. I really love it. I don't want it to stop. Yeah, it's been coming down on and off for like about three days now out here. And uh, we've been out in it a lot. It's crazy that it's actually time to be thinking about spring, though, with the snowstorm and what to plant and what to grow. Yeah, looking outside now, you really wouldn't think that we're past the midpoint between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. Yeah, and I actually just ordered some seeds today. As soon as I guess the snow melts, I want to be planting some like herbs and flowers and stuff in my garden. Just easy stuff. Just easy stuff. I actually don't know if herbs are easy to grow. (laughs) They are easy. They are easy. Okay, good. Are you going to try to grow a lot of your own food or are you looking at a CSA or what are you thinking about that? No, I'm not going to go all in with food this year. I want to grow things that... I can cook with, so like culinary herbs, like I'm really tired of buying thyme and rosemary and like plastic things at the grocery store (laughs) if I need them for something. So I want to plant herbs and stuff, but uh, not vegetables yet because I actually am thinking about joining a CSA. Uh Aha. So what are you thinking about that? It seems very expensive. I think when you actually do the math and kind of budget it out, it's probably either the same as grocery shopping at a grocery store or even less, but you're paying more up front so it feels like it's a lot more. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out right now. And I know I I want to do it. Like, I think I'm 95% on board, but it just, it feels like a really big commitment. I'm so glad you said that because that's where people get tripped up. They look at the price and they look at the year commitment. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just go to the grocery store when I need to. But when you think about it, if you join a CSA, not only are you supporting this farmer, but you are ensuring that you know where your food comes from and you know how it's grown and you know it's fresh and it's really a straight from the farm to you for a whole year. Yeah, and the inconvenient and arduous parts of it that I think at least would make me stop and think is like, okay, then you have piles of whole real vegetables in your fridge that you have to deal with, do something with. You talk about this too because you're you're currently a member of CSA. Like it's a lot of work keeping up with it. So it's like, do I want to, you know, pay a lot of money and have this commitment to like have a lot of work? But I'm more and more convinced that it's actually having that kind of as a challenge every week forces you to be more creative, forces you to cook at home more, just ultimately be healthier. And I think I'm sort of up to and willing to handle that challenge, probably (laughs) because I've been at home for a year. And usually my my life pre-COVID, I'm really busy. I'm all over the place. I'm hardly ever home. I have a lot of like extracurricular activities and stuff that make it so it would be really impractical to be cooking at home all the time. But I, <laughs> my habits have adjusted over the past year. So 
I think that's why I'm leaning more towards it. Yeah, you always hear that. Oh, it's too much. I can't deal with all the the produce, and I don't know what to do with it. So, it is kind of a challenge to think about it, to plan for it, and to use it. But guess what? If you don't, you can turn it into wonderful, marvelous compost that you can use in your own garden, or you can use in your pots to grow your own herbs. And when you think about it, you're just swapping time out. Like the time that you spend planning and preparing this good, fresh, healthy food from a known source, you're trading that for just driving to the store every time you need something. So Mm -hmm. it is a trade-off. It's maybe not what we're used to doing in our culture, but it is something really worth thinking about. And this is CSA sign-up season. Farmers are wanting to get that all planned out so they know how many members they have and they'll know how much to grow. And last year, many, many CSAs filled up really quickly and had long waiting lists because there was more demand than they could handle. So just keep that in mind. And Ellen Polishek here, our guest for this episode, is going to tell you so much about organic food, about what to expect, what to look for, why she's got an entire career's worth of experience and knowledge here. And she's co-author of the book, Start Your Farm, The Authoritative Guide to Becoming a Sustainable 21st Century Farmer. She wrote that book a couple of years ago with Forrest Pritchard. And Ellen lives here in the Ag Reserve. She's our friend and neighbor. And that's the Montgomery County Agricultural Reserve. And she's well known for her expertise in growing things, particularly organic vegetables. This conversation was originally recorded live in the Almanac for members of the Almanac. So every quarter for members in the Almanac, we'll do a live podcast recording. And this was the recording for January. So if you're an Almanac member, you've already heard this conversation. If you're listening again, there's always new nuggets to be found. I've, I've listened to it a couple more times since we first recorded it. We hope you enjoy. So my name is Ellen Polishek. I grew up in the D.C. suburbs in Reston, actually, and was a regular suburban kid. I just was born loving plants. I connected with plants from a very early age, and I love being outside. And putting those two things together sure seemed like gardening and farming were a good way to do all the things I liked at the same time. So I started gardening as a kid in a garden plot down the road and started working on farms when I was 16 during high school. Fell in love, thought this is great. Eventually went to ag school and got a degree from Virginia Tech in horticulture so that I had some more scientific grounding in how plants work and somewhat about how soils work. You know, just like anybody who's young, you have to go away before you can come back. So I did a four-year California thing after college and I worked in the seed business. And I worked on a research farm in Davis, California for Harris Moran Seeds and learned about plant breeding and selections. And it was a super cool job. And I got hooked in to the kind of the movement side of sustainable agriculture and organics, you know, volunteering to be in organizations that were promoting the ideas of sustainable agriculture, both to consumers and to farmers. And so that's always been part of my mix of activities is doing my paid work and then doing volunteering and advocacy work for the movement overall. And so then once I finished being away from the East Coast long enough to appreciate it, I came back to Virginia and ended up working for the same farm where I started it. And when I was 16, I got hired back as a full-time permanent farm manager. And not only that, they had a whole farm, a whole location that they had never really managed and developed into a full-fledged farm. And that was my project was to take these fairly virgin acres out in Loudoun County, Virginia, and turn it into a diversified organic vegetable farm. 
So I did that for 25 years. <laughs> and there's lots of good stories in there. I ended up developing that into a 20 acre tilled vegetable farm, mostly vegetables, a little bit of cut flowers, a little bit of herbs, some greenhouse starts, you know, and I became a compost queen. Also during that period, I fell in love with making compost and we did it in a really big, serious way, like 300 tons a year kind of scale with lots of equipment. It was just a tremendous opportunity as I developed my skills and became more and more integral to the farm business. The folks that I worked for forged a path for me to become a part owner of the business. So by the time I got to the end of my tenure, I was a one-third owner of this amazing vegetable operation. So that was super cool. And then I decided to have another career, right? You know, I felt like I'd accomplished a lot in that setting and I was pleased with where things had ended up. And then opportunities started to come about for doing more teaching and consulting. And so in 2017, I left the farm permanently and launched a full-time business doing this consulting and teaching work. And then moved to Maryland, across the river from Virginia. Been here since 2017, and I'm still learning my way around, learning who's who, making connections to wonderful friends and neighbors here in Montgomery County and around the state. It's going great. Yay! It's really going great. I just have the best job I could imagine at this point in my life, and I get to meet wonderful people, and I get to do my favorite thing, which is to help farmers be more successful. That's my operating principle is to serve the movement by serving individual growers one at a time or in groups so that everybody can make their farms what they want them to be and successful in a business way. So I focus a lot on business management and financial management and labor management because the business that I know about vegetable farming is super labor intensive farming. And so you can be a really good plantswoman or plantsman, and you can still have a crappy business if you're not good at working with people. So people skills are important. And then I work a lot with folks on their soils and fertility and amendments and other kind of nitty gritty production-y stuff. So that's my story in a short little piece. That's awesome. I was wondering, like, the farm you worked for for all these years, it's Potomac Vegetable Farms in Loudoun County, correct? Yeah. And and you go back to, what, the 80s with them? Or Yeah. Okay. So was that an organic farm from the beginning? And at the same time, over the scope of your career, can you speak about the changes that you've seen in the agricultural industry, the growing industry? What kind of things you've seen come and go? Or Yeah, from the first part of the question is what kind of farm or how did Potomac Vegetable Farms grow? Right. And the answer is it was a split personality when okay. I was there. So there are two farms, two locations, and the original one right outside the Beltway in D.C. area. That farm where I learned how to grow stuff from them way back when I was in high school was run like an organic farm. At that point, there was no such thing as certification. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of farming that I learned. And while we were doing fairly intensive scale production in Vienna, the second farm out in Loudoun County was where they were growing mostly sweet corn to have at the roadside stands. And that was grown not organically. And so the big job when I was handed this whole property was to convert those acres back into organic production and to see if I could figure out how to grow sweet corn organically. That was a big part of my first mandate because we wanted to bring ourselves in alignment. The second part of what things have I seen over the course of my career, I can only answer that in terms of my little piece of agriculture in the United States, which is the sustainable ag would be sort of the big umbrella. And then a little bit underneath that umbrella would be the organic sector in and of itself. You know, obviously the movement has expanded tremendously and become something that's almost everybody in the United States has heard of organic vegetables or organic crops. So there's been tremendous growth in the industry 
driven by consumers. On the grower side, there was enough of a call in the land that the word organic needed to have some common meaning, a common understanding across marketplaces. What did that term mean? And that's when the USDA uh, responded to the call of the growers and buyers in the United States to define the word organic and to institute the rules of certification. The organic rule came out in 2003. So Potomac Vegetable Farms with my little nudge we became certified in 19, I don't know, 96 or something like that. No, way before that. Anyway, that's when certification was just sort of hodgepodge. Each state, each organization had its own set of rules. Mm -hmm. And we followed those rules that was organized by a group of growers in Virginia, the Virginia Association for Biological Farming. But then the federal law came into effect 2003, the Organic Foods Act, and that instituted who was going to be allowed to certify. And so there's a quite a lot of adjustment that went on at that point. And our farm, we decided not to pursue certification at that point. And mm-hmm. we'd been in the marketplace for so long and we had a very well-established clientele and we decided we didn't need the certification label in order to successfully sell our vegetables. So we dropped out of certification. We kept farming the same way. We just didn't pursue the legal options of certification. And I think it's important, and I think we're going to get into it some here today, you know, what does the organic label mean? And is it good or bad or indifferent? Or is it important? And all of Mm -hmm. those things. One of the biggest changes is the bringing in of that certification piece, the tremendous growth in the industry. And then from a kind of a different angle, what I would say is kind of the most fun to see as both a participant and an observer in this movement is to see how science is starting to catch up to what the hippies were always saying in the 70s anyway, right? The the basis of the old school organic farmers from back in the Rodale, right? The organic gardening magazine, that's funny little magazine that we all used to get a million years ago was feed the soil and the soil will feed the plant instead of thinking about feeding the plant directly. And so now soil science is catching up and starting to help us see and understand the processes that really are going on in the soil that makes that mantra hold true. So that's really the most fun is to see how science is catching up. And, you know, maybe exceeding, you know, we certainly know, maybe we know more about the how, but we always knew why we were going to do it that way. Right. So that's been fun. You gave me a little lob there with the organic certifications. And what does that mean? Is it good or bad? Please do expand on that. And I'll lead with a little story on our end. We spend a lot of time back and forth with customers asking questions and someone that wanted to buy a set of our kitchen towels And they wanted to make sure that they were organic because they only buy organic fabric in their house, which we totally respect that sentiment and we agree with where they're coming from. But the problem is that this certain pair of (laughs) tea towels that they wanted didn't actually have the organic label on it. It was another certification in the textile world that we trust just as much, but it wasn't certified organic. Anyways, I'm sure you do too, but we have this conversation a lot of times with our customers around certifications and what and why and how and who and when. So there's a lot of technical details about what is certification. And one of the key understandings that may help you is to know that they're certifying a process, the process by which things are grown. They are not certifying a purity of product. Certifying a purity of product would require rigorous testing on a constant basis, right? Yeah. The final and, product. <laughs> yes. And because that is both expensive and kind of just as crazy to even think about, they were smart to make sure to say we're certifying the procedure by which these vegetables or cotton or whatever it is comes to be. We can't control and we can't even know all the ways that the world is influencing this field, 
like what's in the air and how close is it to a highway and are there little pieces of cadmium coming from people's tires from the road that are floating over into the field you know so it's not a purity of the actual product nobody is doing that because it's just too hard and too expensive so that's one thing to understand and you know one way to talk about certification is to talk about what you can't do there's the list of things you can't do and the basic understanding there is that you can't use synthetic products on your farm. That's pretty much the biggest, broadest way to describe what's not okay on an organic farm. That's not as much fun as talking about what is okay or what's wonderful about an organic farm. And that's talking about what we do. And what we do is nurture the soil. So in shorthand, no poisons probiology. That's what organic farming is about. Biological friendliness, making, creating an environment where biology thrives. I love the way you put that. It's so easy to get your head around it. A lot of consumers, I think, might understand organic as meaning no chemicals, but I know that that's not necessarily the case. Can you shed a little light on that? Right. Well, because you, saying the word no chemical is too imprecise, yeah. right? Because everything is a chemical. Right. But the more careful way to say it would be no synthetic chemicals. We use products, amendments, supplies in organic farming that could be described as chemicals, but they come from a natural source. So we use lime, which is calcium carbonate mined out of the soil and ground up. We use all kinds of other rock powders and things that come from the earth. And we use natural manures and byproducts of animal husbandry. And we use botanical things like pyrethrum is an extract from a pyrethrum plant, which has some insecticidal qualities. That's an approved biological insecticide that is falls under the okay list for organic certification saying the word chemical is just too imprecise are there any chemicals that do fall under that category that you personally are like oh i don't know if that well there's a ranking even among the things that are on the approved list Mm -hmm. there's approved with no reservation then there's like approved but we are not super in love with it. And Mm -hmm. then there's like approved restricted, meaning you have to prove that you have a situation that has no other answer. And then you're allowed to use this on a restricted basis. And we have to talk about it every year. And you have to say and show that you're trying to figure out another way to get to, to not have to use it anymore. So it gets very specific and it's quite rigorous. Do you happen to know where the pyrethrins are on that list? Are they like, oh, yeah, the, by all means, or maybe not so they're much? They're kind of in the, eh, 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 because the problem with pyrethrins is they are are not targeted. They'll kill lots of things. Oh, yeah. Like whole bunches of different kinds of insects and not just caterpillars, for instance. In organics, there's a couple different we call them biological controls that are specific for caterpillars. So there's BT is something you may have heard of, Bacillus thuringiensis, and that's used to target just certain classes of insect in a certain stage of growth. And so that would be caterpillars. So that's part of the deciding when is something okay always and when is something like, yeah, that's really for emergency status only, you know, like... Mm. Yeah, You're really in a bad spot sort of thing. I think one of the important things to understand is that it's not really either or. There's a continuum. There's a spectrum. You know, you just have to be informed and kind of, you know, if you're growing for yourself, make these decisions as you go along. Exactly. There are definitely fertilizer amendments that are not approved for organic use, but just from a biological perspective are perfectly mm-hmm suitable and Mm. are not detrimental to your soil, but they go through a certain manufacturing process that then throws them out of the list. Yeah, it has its upsides and it has its downsides. And then the other thing I want to make sure to throw in here outside of this sort of technical growing piece is what was the point of certification? And the point of certification is that a product 
can be on a shelf without the grower present and the consumer has some idea what they're buying and can have some set of assurances about the process by which that crop or that product was grown. And that's why we didn't need to have certification because we always were standing with our products. So we didn't do any wholesale. So our stuff was never on a shelf without one of us there. And so we could represent with everything we know and are exactly what had gone on in the growing process. And so people who are selling what we call direct to consumer don't need certification necessarily, you know, it's really was designed for grocery stores, for places where the grower and the, and the consumer are not together. That's really helpful. Yeah, it yeah. is. And I think we're seeing that more and more with people interacting more with their farmers at the farmers markets and CSAs and stuff. And people are beginning to understand, well, this farm is not certified organic. That's very involved. It's very expensive. It means jumping through a lot of hoops. But I talk to the farmer and I know how these things are grown and I trust it and I feel good about it. And we sort of refer to that. And I'm sure you've heard this like kind of beyond organic. You just it's it's more of a personal connection with the source of your food and you don't need governmental stamps to assure I, you what you're doing. Yeah, I can see both sides of this equation because yeah. I am also a consumer right. as well as a grower. And I'm personally not in favor of the term beyond organic. I think it can be used in a misleading way. Yeah. And just to say, well, just because you're not certified doesn't mean you're any better than somebody that is certified. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it can go both ways. So yes, while I'm certainly encouraging of consumers to become engaged with their food providers and find out all they can, consumers don't know what questions to ask always. Mm-hmm. And so there's still, you know, there's that knowledge gap between the producer yeah. and the consumer and it can still be important and advantageous for even a retail grower to get that stamp of certification because, you know, it's just one more level of trustworthiness. It's not just what the grower is saying of themselves. Mm-hmm. A third party who has, you know, some kind of authority has been to that place, has reviewed all their paperwork, has visited and inspected and says, yes, these people are doing what they say they're doing. So I'm totally all for organic certification. And certainly as a consumer, it's wonderful that it exists. Yeah. What exactly is GMO and what is non-GMO? And is it something that we should be worried about? And what exactly does is that telling us when we see the non-GMO label? These questions can get pretty <laughs> yeah. hairy in terms of the science and the, you know, the technical details, but a genetically modified organism is what those letters stand for, GMO. And what it means is, is that in some lab, somebody took genetic material from one form of life picked out some part of its DNA and then injected it into a plant or an animal by definition, a, not a natural process, mm-hmm. right? You know, they take out genes from salmon and put it into an apple, or I can't even remember all the things they've done, or they take mm-hmm. genes from a bacteria and put it into corn. And so these are things that just would never happen in the normal course of evolution and the way nature works. Mm-hmm. And so it's not natural at all. The issue for me is not so much, is it natural or not? It is the chutzpah, the lack of humility in thinking that we could have any idea what the ramifications will be over time of introducing this artificially created being into the environment. We're just not smart enough. We don't understand ecology and environment well enough to know what might happen in 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years as this newly created being exists in the universe. So that's the part that freaks me out. So I'm not interested in supporting the use of GMOs. And from a political perspective, you know, and we may or may not get into this more as we go along, but... you know, the idea of GMO was sold 
to us as a nation and to the world as this is how we're going to solve hunger in the world. And this is how we're going to figure out how to grow better yielding crops to feed people in every part of the universe that's hungry. And in fact, that's not what's happened. You know, the main things that GMO has done has made it so that farmers can spray Roundup herbicide on every single plant on their farm. Mm. And that is not feeding the world. I think it's been misused. Okay. And, and I would say, you know, in a s- sort of side conversation, if the breeding was really done to figure out how to make rice need less irrigation and become a more drought tolerant plant, and then more people in Africa are going to be able to grow rice and eat it from their own country. All right. I would really think hard about that being maybe a dang good idea, mm-hmm. but that's not what's happening because you don't make money. In, in the <laughs> common use of the term, doesn't it mean that the plant has been bred to not be affected by Roundup? Like it can survive being sprayed by Roundup because that's what they want to do right before harvest to get rid of all the weeds so it's easier to harvest. Isn't that sort of in a nutshell? That's the main use for GMOs so far. And it's not just to spray Roundup before you harvest. It's to spray Roundup as soon as you, after you plant, Mm -hmm. as soon as there's any weeds. Yeah. So this is a plant that's been genetically modified not to be susceptible to dousing of poisons throughout its life. Correct. But that doesn't mean, you know, of course, we don't know if we're getting any of it. You know, there's conflicting ideas on that. (laughs) Yeah, lots of conflicting ideas about what we're actually getting and then Uh what does it do to us. Right. I don't trust that it's good for me and I don't trust that it's good for the farm or good for anything. That's how I decide. So I don't buy GMO as the best I can. I have GMO crops. I think the most interesting thing about that development was, I mean, they started using it heavily in the 90s, but I think it was maybe 2014, maybe. they It was trademarked as an antibiotic because it was discovered that it does kill the microbiology in the soil. And yes. for years and years, we've been hearing from the established medical community that we're exposed to too many antibiotics. And so and suddenly, you know, five, six years ago, we're told that much of our food has been doused with antibiotics. And so you're going like, what? <laughs> right. How is that supposed to work out? Good? Let's connect these dots. <laughs> exactly. In the most raw terms. Yeah. Is that organic farming is about probiology. Yeah. And conventional farming is about antibiology. It's about mm. killing stuff. Yeah. yeah. Killing weeds, killing bugs, killing fungus, killing bacteria, killing everything. It's just no fun. It's no fun to be involved in a business that's about killing stuff. That's what the military's for. And I don't want to be in that either. Right. So anyway, we don't want to get too far sideways here. I know. But okay. So let's circle back then. We're talking about making things grow, including the microbiology. Let's go back to the discussion of soil. And you have a wonderful discussion of soil in your book. So talk to us about the life in the soil and the care of the soil and how that translates to actual nutrients of the food. And maybe as opposed to the nutrients of the food in the conventional agriculture where they're killing microbiology. Wow, that's a good question. And it's complicated, of course. On the one hand, we have organic agriculture probiology yeah. growing, which is about creating an atmosphere in which the plant is going to take care of itself. Basically, we're going to create conditions on our farms and in our soils where the plant is going to be able to not just survive, but thrive. It will find what it needs because we've made sure that the soil is rich in terms of nutrients, but also because it's rich in terms of biology. So the key piece that we mentioned already early at the beginning was that it's soil biology that is what's feeding the plant. They are inextricably linked in a healthy 
ecology. The plant is feeding the microbes and the microbes are feeding the plant. They're making a trade because the plant is the translator of the sun. The plant is the solar collector taking the energy from the sun and turning it into sugar and then a chemical form of sunlight. Now there's a positive way of using the word chemical and it's shooting that sugar out through its roots into the soil system to feed microbiology. That's their way of getting sun, of getting tan, of getting (laughs) energy is through this sugar. So plants can give up to 70% of all the sugar they create, they give it away. They push it out through their roots into the soil. They give it away. Now they're not just giving it away willy nilly. They get something in return. So those that microbiology provides services. So they work together. I'll give you sugar, says the plant. Now, can you get me some phosphorus? Mm. Oh, sure. Says mycorrhizal fungi. I know all about phosphorus. I'm a totally a phosphorus dealer. How much would you like? And they make a trade. And so that's very simplistic, but it seems to be what's going on is this trading system of sugar for water and nutrients. And that's how the whole thing works. That's amazing. And so we're trying to not get in the way of that working. Also, microbiology provides security. So the plant feeds and encourages the kinds of biology that are going to protect it from marauding invaders. So instead of the farmer having to try to kill everything that's in the soil and protect it through poison, the plant can protect itself by being healthy, having these nutrients and encouraging the biology that it wants to protect it. It's like its own armed guards around the whole root system. It's covered with good guys. So then the bad guys can't get in because there are certainly bad guys, right? Like here we are in the COVID times, there's things out there that we're not too happy about. And coronavirus is one of them, you know, and, and phytophthora root rot, that would be another one that a grower wouldn't, might not be so happy about. So we do classify them from our human perspective as good guys and bad guys. I, I don't even remember what the question the, was, but. How that circle how back I, to the, to the to nutrients. nutrients that you're getting in yourself yeah. when you eat this food. That's Okay. So on the one hand, we have this biologically friendly system. Mm-hmm. And then there's such a thing as hydroponics. So on the far other end of the spectrum, people take the plant out of the soil altogether. They dangle its roots in a a nutrient solution in a greenhouse. They're basically living in a sterile environment. And those plants will also grow. Mm. They can make it in these other systems. But I don't think, well, one, I'm not interested in that system because it's boring. (laughs) And two, I'm of the opinion that that lettuce that's going to grow sitting in a chemical bath of water in an artificial environment is not going to have the life force or the total nutrient content or whatever you want to talk about as a lettuce that's grown on beautiful, rich soil full of biology. Plants are pretty adaptive. And so, I mean, look at American agriculture. We grow an awful lot of plants with a really horrible system of using poisons everywhere, and still there are plants. But the products of those plants, I think, are less good. They have less inherent value. They have lower protein. They have less mineral content. I think we're still really at the forefront of understanding from a science angle what the difference is in the actual products of these kinds of growing environments. Yeah. You know, if you're curious about these things, you have to notice the chronic health conditions that are prevalent in the public population and just wonder what the connections are, even though we might not have exact research on it. You know, it seems like there's correlations, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. And I, this is a good place where I want to interject another idea for your folks. And there's thinking about organics from a personal 
consumption angle, right? Like I want to take care of my body and my digestive system and my baby. I'm going to buy all organic food for this brand new human. They're only going to get the best. And I'm all for that. And it's usually the first way that anybody starts to even think about nutrition and healthfulness is when they have a baby. It's like the gateway drug to learning how to take care of yourself. That's perfectly valid and wonderful. But there's this whole other view, which is not your personal body. Let's talk about all the bodies. Let's talk about everybody's body. Let's talk about the environment. Let's talk about the water and the soil and the air. And that's a whole other, much more compelling reason to buy and support pro-biology agriculture. So get out of your gut and start thinking about (laughs) the bigger picture. Now, that's when you start to think, okay, organic bananas. Think about who are the people that are working on the banana plantation? What chemicals are they going to be exposed to every day, 365, if they work on a normal dole plantation or chiquita or whatever that's doused in fungicides? Those people's lives are not going to be as good. Just keep those two options open to worry about your personal self, but worry about all the other people's. That's a great lead to this other question that I had, which is given the choice between local and organic, I'm just going to ask personally for you, are you like going to choose local over organic or what's a struggle? Yeah. You know, like I said, I mean, I'm a consumer too. I don't grow any apples. This is where the issue really exists on the East coast. Yeah you know, there's like five organic orchards on the east half of the United States, maybe yeah. five. Yeah. And and are they anywhere near you? Maybe, maybe not. And so if you want an organic apple, is it going to automatically be coming from Washington State and Oregon? Probably that's where it's going to come from. Just for an aside, why can they grow those there? Because they have a different environment. They don't have humidity. And the issue with apples is our fungus problems. And so on the East Coast, we have humid air and it's really hard to grow a decent looking apple without fungicides, without chemical fungicides. I would say I go both ways, you know, it just depends on the day. It depends on the week. It depends on the season. I shop at the Frederick Co-op, which I love with all my heart. And sometimes I'll get Hopefully I'll get a Pennsylvania grown organic apple. Then I get to have both. And then maybe I don't have time to go to that store and I go someplace else. Then I'll probably end up with organic apples from Washington state. I can't say one is always better than the other, but as long as you're thinking about it at all, you're like in the top 0.2% of consumers and you're already a total rock star. And so whatever you decide, I support you, you know? That's awesome. I think it's important that we don't, you know, judge ourselves or hold ourselves to these crazy standards that kind of paralyze us. You can give yourself cancer by worrying too much. (laughs) Right. So you got to balance that exactly like you say, Mary. Yeah. And the the thing is just to be informed and know, know what it is you're even questioning. So I'd say for me personally, where I'm heading now that I don't farm for a living, I garden like crazy. I've I kind seen of it. moved into like a crazy homesteading lady at this point. And I'm really getting into growing as much food as I can and storing it for myself. So I'm eating my food. Mm-hmm. And so now for me, the tension, those tough decisions is like, am I going to buy out of season produce? Yeah. Right. So I go to Costco, right? I get stuff at Costco. I get avocados at Costco. Am I going to get greenhouse grown tomatoes from Mexico and cucumbers and red peppers and all that stuff? And so far this winter, I'm the hardest core I've ever been. I'm like, no, I'm only getting organic bananas and not organic avocados. That's the line. I'm not getting cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers because I canned them or I froze them, or I'm just not going to have fresh tomatoes until I grow my own. That's awesome. They're available here. And that alone, that's a big shift in a lot of people's eating habits. And that is also the perfect segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you. You know, your book is such a great guide for people wanting to start their commercial farm. 
to make money as a business, but it also contains all this great information for people just wanting to grow food for themselves. Like you said, like if you've become a crazy homesteading lady and you want to, <laughs> you want to do this, especially in the past year, you know, starting last March and you know yourself what a rush there was on the local CSAs and all this. So what bit of beginning advice do you have for someone that, that wants to go more in that direction? And they're not seeking to make a profit from a big farm, but they just want to grow their own food. Yeah, there's tyranny. I mean, it still turns out even now in 2021 that gardening, I think, is still America's number one hobby. And that's including, you know, grass and trees, shrubs and azaleas and impatiens and the whole nine yards, the biggest picture of gardening. So there's a lot, a lot of knowledge out there about how to grow stuff. And there's more and more knowledge about how to grow stuff organically. There's resources just like mad, you know, even through public channels, through your, through your local extension service, through the Master Gardeners program. And then, you know, the vast land of YouTube videos, a million magazines, books, eBooks, every kind of thing. And so I don't need to be the supplier of mm-hmm. that kind of information. It's just all over the place. And so all I would say is, just get started, just do something, you know, even if it's in a pot, if you have to just start growing plants and having experiences and learning from one year to the next and make connections. Gardening is a great basis to be connected to somebody else, to learn from somebody else. There are people in your neighborhood who know how to grow stuff and you need to find out who they are and you need to hang out with them. You need to like invite yourself over for a garden tour and you need to ask a million questions. Just start trying stuff. And the answer is compost. Yes, <sighs> you want compost. That's going to make a huge difference for you. So there's lots and lots of resources and you just need to get started. Just start. And start with something, well, easy would be nice. And something that would just give you joy, that would make it the most fun for you, whether that's a basil plant or whether it's a marigold plant. Just start growing stuff and see what happens. How are you making compost on your homestead these days? We upped our game a little bit. So now I don't have all my fancy equipment anymore, but we do have a tractor, which is probably more than a lot of folks would have available. We live on a really hilly property and we found a spot where we kind of like carved out an area so we can make compost pile up against the earth. So the backdrop is Mm. the carved out part of the hill. And then we put up pallets to create these stalls, kind of like a composting stall. And then we put pallet forks on the front of the tractor instead of the bucket. And we just take those pallet forks and just lift them up through the pile once a week and just Uh turn it. We mix it up. Yeah. And then I also still like to use a compost cloth over the top, compost cover to keep it from getting too wet. Too wet of compost is not going to work out good. That's when it starts smelling probably. Yep. It's very wet. The smelling for the lay person is the best way to tell what's going on out there. If it doesn't smell good, it's not good. If yeah. it smells good, it's good. If it starts smelling bad, can it be rescued by some yes. dry material and some sunshine? <laughs> and air. It's all about oxygen. More oxygen. That makes the pile go aerobic. And those critters take away all the bad smell. Bad smell comes from anaerobic decomposition. That's what rotting is. Rotting is anaerobic decomposition and it stinks. Yeah. So do you just walk your kitchen compost out there and just dump it in the bucket or do you have separate ones? Like this is the freshest and this is a few months old. Like a three stall system. And do you do meat? Do you do everything? Just the veg. Yeah. And some paper products, a little bit of newspaper if we have paper towel. Yeah. Anything that's a meat, we throw the bones in the bushes, basically. You know, we're on five acres. We just throw them out in the woods and let somebody deal with it out there. (laughs) But we have space. And I know that's a limiting factor for lots of people, but there's a million different compost systems for sale. I've not used a single one of them, so I have nothing to say. But if I was space limited, first of all, I think I'd just have a worm box. Yeah, to feed feed scraps to forget all that other schlepping around outside, like put it in your basement or in your garage or on your patio or wherever you got space and just feed the worms. That's what I would do. And then the next step up is I like those ones that either you turn them like they crank 
or you yeah. roll the thing around on the yard. Air is the limiting factor. Oxygen is a limiting factor. So whatever way you can keep getting oxygen in the system, that's when you're going to start having success. And the main thing that home composters never get wrong is you have to stop putting fresh stuff in there if you're ever going to get finished. Yeah. Right? You have to stop putting in banana peels. <laughs> like that's it. And let it go. Yeah. Just have you're two always, piles. <laughs> yeah. If you're always putting in new materials, ain't never going to get done. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you have two piles and you leave one alone for several months and then you go back and forth. Yep, but exactly. just as a side note, I had one of those drums one time. I was so excited about it. I thought it was going to be the thing. And it was really hard to turn. It was yeah. just so dying heavy. And I, I don't think it had enough oxygen in it. And I think everything was just turning into mush in there. And it, I wouldn't yeah. do one of those again unless I had better ventilation. But regular consumers don't have enough carbon sources. Yeah, just vegetable scraps, banana peels and coffee grounds. It's all too wet and it's too high nitrogen. You need dried leaves, hay, straw, some carbon source to balance it out. Even shredded paper would mm -hmm. be a great addition because otherwise it's, it's just too much nitrogen. It's not going to work out. We have a question here about it's a cost analysis question. What's your opinion on how animals can fit into farm labor and soil development? Can they be worth the cost in your opinion? When it comes to labor on a farm like mine, they wouldn't replace any of the things I'm paying those people to do, right? Because mostly people are planting, weeding, and harvesting and selling. And the animals aren't going to replace any of those things. Chances are that a tractor would be faster and cheaper than goats, you know, but I'm not saying you shouldn't work with the goats. I personally don't want to work with goats. They <laughs> me out and I don't want to have anything to do with them. Right. So I'd say it's more about temperament than it is about uh, economics. And that, that's an interesting question. Yeah. In some places like our, in the ag reserve, you get tax benefits if you have a certain number of animals or crops and call yourself a farm. So whoever's doing this analysis might want yeah. to factor that in. And, you know, we are a farm because we have X number of animals. But as my husband loves to point out, we spend a whole lot more taking care of and feeding the animals <laughs> than we would spend on the tax bill. So it's, <laughs> it's a toss-up. <laughs> yes. It's a real commitment, you know, and that's part of it the is. thing. I don't speak the language of animals. I yeah. speak plant. And what I like about <laughs> plants is... They're usually in the same place the next morning as they were the night before. <laughs> they don't run away. And when they die, you just plant more, right? It doesn't break your heart. <laughs> like a, something with eyeballs that's sick or, in, or damaged is, yeah. is really a heart-wrenching experience. But dead plants, it's like, yeah, well, it's just a dead plant. I'll just plant some more plants, right? <laughs> so that works good for my temperament. <laughs> This has been so fun, Ellen. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, we always like to ask people on our show, what is the thing that they most want our listeners here today and also listening to this recording later? What do you want people to understand the most about the work that you do? I think we've kind of hit on some of my main points, and that is that understanding about certifying process versus purity the difference between probiology and antibiology. Those are sort of bigger picture. The work that I do is too off topic for most anybody to worry anything about at this point. As a consultant, it's like, who cares what I do? So as speaking as a farmer, then if I put back on my old farmer hat and I would think about your question, it still leads me to want to talk political. Yeah. And <laughs> go really for it. Big, bigger picture stuff. And that is, we have a fundamental problem in our country around agriculture that we don't value food as a society. And the price that food is in the store is not enough for growers to make a living on just barely. And that isn't the way it should be. I just wish that we could change so many things but here's an idea that we haven't talked about that i'd love to serve yeah, to you do it and that is to go back to the original impulse behind the csa movement 
CSA is Community Supported Agriculture. When that idea came to the United States, the idea was if we imagine that each person on the earth has a God-given right or a divine right or a fundamental right, I don't want to freak anybody out, (laughs) to feed themselves as a biological organism. And let's just say that in order for any human to feed themselves, they would require access to and the use of, let's just say, a theoretical quarter acre, right? In order for all their food and sustenance to come from. Therefore, each of us is directly responsible for the care and maintenance of our own theoretical quarter acre from which our bodies will be made. And if we each choose that we will not individually, personally take care of that quarter acre, then we need to personally choose who will take care of it for us. Mm. And that was the original idea of the CSA, was the formalization of the choosing of who will care for your quarter acre for you. Mm -hmm. Because you are a nurse, or you're a teacher, or you're the president of the United States, or whatever it is that you are, and you have other things to give the world, and you don't have time, talent, or temperament to do the caretaking, you need to choose then who will love that quarter acre for you in the way that you think it should be loved, Mm -hmm. and then support them in whatever way they need to do the job right. If we could just internalize that to some degree, mm-hmm. it could change everything. The trouble is, because I would like to be a troublemaker, mm-hmm. is that over the last 30 years, the whole idea has just totally gotten watered down and now it's freaking Amazon CSA. Mm-hmm. Now it's yeah. choose your own. Oh, you don't like turnips? You don't have to have turnips. Oh, you only want carrots? You can just have carrots. Oh, you want to skip this week and come back next week? Oh, it's now it's all about consumer choice and consumer convenience. Mm -hmm. And now it's not about committing Mm -hmm. to one farm thriving and you standing for that farm, no matter what, that was the whole point Mm. is to say, I promise I'm with you. Here's the money, go do the right thing. And if the hurricane comes and smashes it all down, you still got the money and you're still alive and you can still pay your mortgage. Like mm-hmm. that was the point. And now it's gotten all watered down and it makes me grumpy. And, and the other piece of it too, is it's, it's about ensuring the survival and the thriving of this farm, but it's also about ensuring your thriving and survival. It's a mutual thing. It's not, yes. you're just propping up this yeah, it's not, a charity farm. it's not a, no, no, it's yeah. a two way street. So I think the missing piece is that people are valuing that that food and that love and that care that's going into that quarter acre. It's about valuing that over what you get from Amazon or whatever. Yep. As Emma and I so often say, we started out Lady Farmer about clothing. There's such a parallel there. Yes. Your daily needs, the things you need every day. And it's about valuing what is that object? What is that piece of food? What is that piece of fabric? And where did it come from? And why would you pay more? And all of that. So they're wonderfully interrelated things to think about and explore. And it really does enrich one's experience. Yes. The more story, Mm -hmm. the more context that comes with each of these items you know, and then there's that thing about food. I mean, clothes are personal. I mean, they're certainly on, but our bodies are made out of the food. Mm-hmm. It is exactly who we are. Yeah. yeah. And even that, if anybody could actually grok that mm-hmm. fully, it would change everything. Like, why right. would you make your body out of that? That's right. gross. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like they're really sort of the caring. Thing. They're really caring yeah. about it. Yeah. But just that, and anybody who's a gardener, you know, just the pride and the mm-hmm. sort of the meaning that comes when you bring that food into the house yeah. or you put it straight into your mouth or you hand it to your child or your partner or your neighbor. I mean, just the, all the good feeling that comes with it 
that's also nutrition. Yes. It's not just mm-hmm. about the phosphorus. Yeah. It's also about this energetic connection. Ho- hopefully are getting hooked on that connection through whatever CSA model they're involved in. They're starting to be like, look what farmer Mike grew. Mm-hmm. Look yeah. what farmer Charlotte grew. Yeah. It just livens the experience of eating. It's just so sweet. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, what Absolutely. a wonderful place to wrap up. Yeah, Ellen. So where can people find you? What books can they read? If they really do want to be a farmer. What do they do? Yeah, how can yeah. we find you? So I have a website and it's called Plant to Profit. As you can tell by my choice of words, those are the things I care about. I care about plants, but I really work mostly with people in a, with that business context involved, Mm -hmm. because if you can't make a living, then you're not going to get to be able to farm anymore. I do participate in Instagram fairly regularly and have really a lot of fun watching the food porn that's on my (laughs) Instagram channel. I only follow farmers and gardeners. So it's just like beautiful photographs of soil and babies and vegetables. It's farmer Ellen plant to Providence, like too many letters. I don't even know. And there's an underscore in there or something. (laughs) And then I just have the one book that I wrote called start your farm. And it really is for people who are really thinking about having this be their business, you know, their life's work. And then I write articles for a magazine called Growing for Market, which is a little, very niche uh, publication for market gardeners around the country. A little bit about flowers, mostly vegetables, all under the umbrella of sustainability. And I, I write farmer profiles, stories about growers. For anybody starting off, I would say the biggest piece of advice is to go work on a farm in any capacity that you can. If it's volunteering every Saturday morning for three hours for a year, if it's one day a week, if it's one month in the summer when you're not teaching school, before you start to really spend some money and start to complicate your life, make sure that that work is really the work that you want to be doing with your body. It's a big thing to start a business called a farm. And so I want you to really have some experience of what that feels like in your body at different times of year, what those jobs are like, and see if that really looks like what you want your life to be. And then the technical piece, you know, the more you can work for somebody else, the more you get paid to learn. Mm. And then there's, you know, again, the YouTubes and the video classes, there's millions of resources that'll help you with the technical piece. And then there's, if you just want to start growing food for yourself, you can just start very small and yeah. do your find, pots. Yeah. Find some buddies. Yeah. Find some pals. And yeah. that just makes it so much more fun. And they have all kinds of pals right here in the Almanac. Yeah. So yeah. we're If you're not already in the Almanac, come yeah. join us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much, Ellen. This- you're welcome. That was fun. Yeah. So fun. Okay, what do you think, Emma? Are you convinced you're going to join the CSA? <laughs> I I do. I am. I want to. I didn't say this at the beginning, but I've actually already emailed the farmer, and technically, they are full for this year already. So, <gasps> oh gosh, I know. She said that yeah. I'm on the waiting list. So I don't know. My answer is I don't know yet. If I get off the waiting list, then yes. I guess in the meantime, I'll look around for other CSAs. But I really like this, the particular one that you're also part of, Mom, I want to join. It's Mutu Orchards in Virginia. It's particularly special because it's a full diet CSA. So they also have milk, grains, and meat, not just veggies. So I really want to do that one. I have been a part of a Just a Veggie CSA in the past. And while it was awesome, I still had to go to the store for other things. So if I can do the full diet CSA, I want to do that. Hard to find a full diet in CSA, so I, it's no surprise to me that they're already full. Yeah. But let that be a cautionary tale. If you're at all interested out there, now's the time to start looking around and put your name in. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in today to The Good Dirt. If you're not already following us at We Are Lady Farmer on Instagram, definitely go on there and give us a follow. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, you can like and subscribe to The Good Dirt on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Share it with a friend if you learned something. We'd love to spread the good dirt around. And I mentioned the Almanac in the intro to this episode. If you're not familiar, the Almanac is our online membership community for folks looking to live a slower, more sustainable life with the seasons. So we have a ton of awesome content and events and workshops on there like the live Good Dirt podcast recordings. We have another gathering tonight at the time of this recording that we're excited about. We're going to hop on and chat about paring down our closet and sustainable wardrobes, so I'm really excited about that. Currently, the Almanac is not open for enrollment, but we will reopen in March for the spring season. So if you are interested, definitely go on our website, sign up for our newsletter so you will know when enrollment opens for spring. And anything else, Mom? We'll be taking signups for our Slow Living Challenge, which starts February 21st. So that's going to be fun this year. So keep an eye out for that. Yes. And speaking of growing your own food, we do have a growing your own food intensive workshop coming up in March, March 13th. So mark your calendar and tickets have not gone on sale for that yet, but they will soon. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. It's going to be great for beginners, but it's also going to be a little more involved for those of you that are needing a little more information and a little more in-depth instruction. It's going to be really good. That's definitely enough for this episode. Yeah, I think that's enough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We will see you next week on The Good Dirt. Have a great weekend, everybody. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well we're so excited to offer the almanac it's our private slow living community network where we share workshops activities articles essays recipes and so much more that align with our community's sustainable slow seasonal way of living as a member you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow living enthusiasts as well as Almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including the Slow Living Retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac or three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com community.